everybody. Welcome back to The Smattering, where we answer the important questions about investing. I'm Jason Hall. This is Jeff Santoro. Hey, Jeff. Hey, how are you? I'm good. This is, this is, this is a special episode. Special episode. Even though it's our normal Saturday drop, this one's special because when everyone listens to this, we will literally be at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting in Omaha, Nebraska. We're going to see Uncle Warren and Uncle Char- uh, Charlie, Charlie Munger. I don't know if he's an uncle. Well, we can't call him Uncle Charlie because that's a curveball. That's right. Yes. Right. So we're going to see Uncle Warren. We're going to see Charlie Munger. We will be at the meeting when most people listen to the podcast. So we decided we would do an episode called, Does Warren Buffett Even Matter? Because depending on what kind of market we're having, bull or bear, people seem to have strong opinions about Warren Buffett. So we're going to talk through some of that, have some fun with it in in honor of the annual meeting. Yeah, and I, I guess we're kind of putting the lie to the to the 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 name of this episode because, like you said, we're actually going to be there. So certainly, Berkshire Hathaway is still a relevant company, and Warren Buffett still matters. But I think the key to me is as we as we get into this, I want to say this before we do a little bit of housekeeping, Jeff, is that just like any other investor or CEO or public figure or historical figure or however you want to frame it, a, a person who did things or said things that can have some sort of influence, it's important to put them within context, right? And I think that's that's what we're going to try to do when it comes to Warren Buffett here today. Yeah, we're going to try to add some context because he's a sort of a mythical creature in the world of investing and just in the world of business generally. So it'll be some it'll be fun to talk through it. So real quick, some housekeeping. Stick around for the second half of this episode. We're going to do a very quick review of the Smatterfolio April and, and how our stocks in our portfolio did in our little contest here. But we're mostly going to talk about a decision Jason made recently and how it turned out. So that's the teaser. So stick around for that. But we want to, again, encourage everyone who's listening to, to give us a rating on the podcast app of your choice. If you are watching on the, on the YouTube channel, subscribe, give us a, a a review in there. It really helps us. It really helps people find the podcast and we would be super appreciative of it. With that said, Jason, I'm going to, I want to start off by sharing a quick story about Warren Buffett as I've experienced him over the past three years as like a new stock investor. So I've always obviously known who he is forever. And I've actually even been to Omaha, Nebraska once, although it was not to see Warren Buffett. But I remember distinctly during 2020, 2021, when the bull market was roaring, the the commentary on Twitter about Warren Buffett was basically, he's lost his fastball. He's old news. He had a good run. His style of investing is passe. It no longer works, et cetera, et cetera. And now all that has gone away. And there's another, there's a new appreciation for Warren Buffett. So I think that's where I want to kick the conversation off and what I was saying earlier. Like it really does seem that the 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 Twitter sphere's rating, so to speak, of Warren Buffett seems to be completely tied to how well or poorly the overall stock market is doing. So that's where I wanted to start. Recency bias is a thing. I think we'll start there because as 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 any as anyone who's listening who's followed the markets or in, invested for multiple decades knows. This isn't the first time we've we've heard this. These 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 same calls were being made back in '98, '99, during the the dot com run up, right? Because Warren Buffett famously said he wouldn't invest in tech stocks, and of course, as usual, all of the context was lost. Warren Buffett's explanation was, "I don't understand technology. I don't really." The big thing was, "I don't know how to value a lot of these businesses." And back then, a lot of those businesses, they didn't even really have a business, right? They had a website, right? And they, the metrics they were reporting was traffic to their website, right? They weren't even generating necessarily revenue in a lot of cases, right? So, and during that period of time, Jeff, Berkshire definitely underperforms, you know, during the dot-com boom. And it wasn't even close. Like, it was just, it d- didn't perform well. And th- there were parts of his business struggled a little bit. And, and needless to say that that, that changed very much. But I I want to bring that up because what we saw during 2020, especially 
and again, carrying through into the first, through the first half of 2021 was very much the same thing. Exactly what you said. Buffett's lost his fastball. Buffett doesn't have it anymore. That style of investing doesn't work. All of the things that you said were true. And there was anecdata, right? Not really evidence, but there were some things that kind of supported it. Because if you look at the, the market peaked March, late, Mar or late, late February, 2020, and then within a few weeks, the, the world basically went into lockdown, right? We all self-quarantined. People started dying. We didn't know what was going on. The market bottomed about a month later, and then the market started to recover. And one of the things that we do as financial writers, we follow these big money investors pretty closely because there's really interesting content when, when, they're, when they file with the SEC, what their holdings are at the end of each quarter. It's always really interesting to see what happens. And there's no 13F that's followed anywhere nearly as closely as Berkshire, right? What did Buffett do? Everybody wants to know what did Buffett do during the quarter? Here's the thing. So when the quarter ends and into March, it's another 45 days before you get that 13F. So May goes by, April goes by, and then May goes by, and then mid-June, you finally see the 13F for what was Buffett doing, hopefully, right? What was he doing in March? That's what everybody wanted to know. Like late February, early March, what was he doing? We'd finally find out. Berkshire bought a bunch of Japanese trading companies, Jeff. That was it. And everyone was super excited, not just because you want to know what Warren Buffett's doing, but they had a ton of cash on yeah. the balance sheet. So, you know, it wasn't just like, what's Berkshire going to do? It's like Berkshire sitting on tens of billions of dollars. I forget the exact amount. Lots so, of, lots of bullet, bullets for, for Berkshire's elephant gun. Exactly. That's the, yeah. That's the thing. And we, here's that we already knew what he had sold because he, Buff, Berkshire had sold the airline the, the year before Buffett said, okay, the airlines are finally investable. It's consolidated. It's a profitable industry. I like it. Bought the, the three or four largest U.S. airlines and sold. Like, that's the one thing we already knew had happened. It's like, okay, well, what did he do with the nothing? Bought some Japanese trading companies. There were nothing exciting. And I remember looking at it. And at first I was like, huh, that's, that's disappointing. That's really disappointing. And then I started kind of processing a, a little bit and thinking about it, Jeff. And what what I remembered is this was Buffett's MO. This was normal. Because if you look at the financial crisis back in, you know, the market peaked in October 2007, and there were already signs there that there were problems, and the market wouldn't bottom for another 18 months, right, from that October peak in 2007 to the March 2009 bottom. You know, it's a year and a half, basically. The market recovered in like nine months, you know, like from top back to top in maybe it was six months. Like it was, it was well under a year and the full recover and the decline was, was four weeks, right? From top to bottom and then fully recovered in less than a year. The top to top period back in the financial crisis, we've talked about this before, was five and a half years for the market to recover to that October high. Right. So he had a lot more time to think, to process, to... And I think that's what's, in my mind, one of the most remarkable things about Warren Buffett and his investing style and Berkshire's success is that he doesn't seem to ever do the quick market reaction thing. Like, I think we were all expecting in when we got that 13F right after the COVID crash, we were, oh, he must have bought all these companies that were beat down. And it could have just been that he was never going to do that. It was always, here's my short list of things I'm looking at or thinking about. And maybe none of them seemed appealing, or maybe he had a sense that it was too much information or too crazy of a black swan event to even really make a rational decision. And I, you hear Buffett and, and Charlie Munger talk a lot about, you don't have to swing at every pitch. You only get, I, just the other day, Charlie Munger did an interview and said, in an investing career, you might only get three to five truly great moments to invest in a company. I mean, that over the course yeah. of their, you know, they've been investing for 70, 80 years. So it just shows like, like the patience. I think right. I wasn't investing. I didn't know what I was doing when the COVID pandemic hit, but I'd imagine a lot of people were looking at stuff that crashed and just buying because it was low and buying because it was low. And some of those probably worked out and others didn't. Just And I think they were just sort of like, 
slow and steady. We'll, we'll figure this out. But yeah, it did recover I, so quickly. So, and and that's you know that's the thing. This was different, right? And every 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 market crash and every recovery is different, right? There's the average, and never and but this one was was different, different in that it did recover so quickly. I think the average, if you look at a a twenty percent decline over the past fifty or sixty years, they almost always like the the decline takes a year and a half, right? Look at Look at 2022, right? This is a good example, right? The, it, the, the decline basically happened over the full year, you know, from that, that, from the peak in early, the first, it was the first week of January of 2022, right? Was the all-time high still from here. And the market pretty much declined that entire year, not four weeks. So you can't, you can't fault Buffett for sticking with that methodical process. And I, I've I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I don't want to spend a ton of time talking about it because we have some other things we want to discuss, thinking about relevance and thinking about Buffett and and Berkshire. And Berkshire is an investment, right? Is it is its best days over? Is it even investable? Like all of those kind of things I want us to keep talking about. But I think talking about this process is really, really, really useful. So me, like my strategy we've talked about this before, my framework around cash is, you know, I keep about 5% cash is kind of my, that's like my high watermark, about 5% cash is the most that I generally want to have. If the market falls 20%, I'm going to spend half that cash. I'm going to deploy it, right? If the market continues to fall, I'm going to take half of whatever cash I've got left. I'm going to deploy that too. And I'm a little mad that Uncle Warren didn't adopt my strategy, you know, <laughs> that it didn't deploy half of Berkshire's cash when the market fell that quickly. But then I think it's important to not let hindsight bias blind us too much, just looking at a line on a chart and ignore what was going on in the world in April of 2020. We didn't have all of like, there was talks about, there was a little bit of like the beginning of the conversation around financial support, right? We saw the largest layoffs in American history in March, right? The unemployment rate skyrocketed when every bar and retailer and restaurants in the country basically closed down and laid off all of their workers. You know, it was remarkable what happened. And we did not know, we did not know about the, this unprecedented financial support that not just the U.S. government, but that around the world, the governments were going to provide that would prevent this from being the biggest banking crisis, you know, the, maybe the second biggest banking crisis after the financial, you know, the great financial crisis. And it makes sense that Berkshire would have sat back because banks have always been an area that Buffett has been very countercyclical about. Again, making some pretty substantial investments in Bank of America back during the financial crisis turned out being to be a massive winning investment for, for, for Berkshire investors, right? And it made sense that Buffett was going to sit back and really start thinking, what are the implications of what we're going through and not be in such a rush to deploy capital because the funny thing was that Buffett was kind of like the savior for a lot of businesses back then. You mentioned Bank of America. That investment probably did, I wouldn't say it saved Bank of America, like the money didn't necessarily save Bank of America, but the having Warren Buffett's stamp of approval and his confidence in it was massively valuable. Of course, you know, he got a song on on the, I think it was warrants that he got that were paying a really good yield and the cost basis to, to convert those warrants to common shares was crazy cheap. But he did the same thing for Harley-Davidson, right? Got some preferred share. Maybe the, I can't remember if they're warrants or preferred shares, but did really saved. Harley-Davidson probably would have gone bankrupt if not for that Berkshire investment. And the, the federal governments did all of that saving this time around. And there weren't any of those opportunities right, to, to be the white knight and make a big profit as the white knight this time around. And I think that's where we talk a lot about we're always fighting the last battle. And I think investors were expecting, oh, there's a big crisis in the market. Warren Buffett will do something. And I, look, we don't know exactly what he was thinking, but I, I, what I do think is worth remembering is the time frame from market bottom to when we started to see, when we saw the first legislation to with the stimulus and all the I mean it was pretty quick like Congress passed that first cares act 
I don't remember exactly when. It was in April. Yeah, it, yeah, was, in it April. was weeks after the market bottomed. And so it could just be that by the time, you know, Warren and, and Berkshire started to think through like, what could we possibly do? It's like, oh, wait a minute, hold on. Look what the government's doing. Let's pump our, you know, so yeah. It, and that's where I think the reaction or lack of action from Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett after the COVID crash is different than previous crashes because it was so quick and the recovery from the government was so substantial. That changes the calculus. So one of the things that resonated with me as we were talking through like this episode was the whole idea of Berkshire being viewed as an out-of-date investment but when the market's running up, but now everyone's kind of looking at it again as like a, a, run, a place to go for safety. And I wanted to know what your thoughts were on that aspect of it, because the thing I keep thinking about, and I think at one point, either Warren or Charlie said, Berkshire won't overperform in a, in a bull market, but that's not why you own it. You own it so that it's ballast in your portfolio for, for the 2022s that come along. So that's what I've been thinking a lot about. I, that's why you want to have Berkshire Hathaway in your portfolio, because it will be there when the market isn't going up every single day for a straight year. Buffett's been telling us for a long time that it's going to be harder for, for, for Berkshire to be that outperformer in a sustainable market because of exactly that reason, that, that it's, it's, it's a more stable business, right? And it's, it's harder. This is a big thing he's talked about. It's harder to find those this is a company with a $500 billion plus, was it over $600 billion in market cap now? It's harder to find those needle moving acquisitions that are going to generate strong per share, you know, cash flow growth for, for investors. And, and, and that's just, it's just, that's the reality. But again, the, the flip side of it is it's a business that through the full cycle is going to be less volatile, right? Like you said, ballast, I think, is a good way to think about it. But it's generally going to outperform when things are, are, are less certain because, again, the realities of having, be, being, be, you, you know you can go to Berkshire and it's going to be a source of financial strength. You know they're the ones that are going to have cash when nobody else does. Um, there's a lot of value to that, right? And it's a lot of potential to generate outsized returns. And it's played out, Jeff. So if you look at, at Berkshire, from that peak, let's say that that February twenty first peak, when the when the market, the 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 pre crash, the pre COVID peak, Berkshire stock is up forty seven percent. The S and P five hundred, this is total returns, the dividends included, is up thirty one percent. So that's a solid outperformance. You know that's that's nearly fifty percent higher returns than the S and P from that pre crash peak. Now, here's the funny thing about it. If you, if you look at it from the bottom, March 23rd, 2023. So like the best time to have bought all of everything else, it's also outperformed. It's up about 110% versus about a double for the S&P from that, from that COVID bottom. So, but I will tell you this, if you go back and look at that bull run, that 2010s bull run, there was a period of time when the S&P 500 had nearly doubled Berkshire's returns, right? So again, we're only looking at a few years here. If you start stretching it out five, 10 years, like you look at the 10-year return, and this is as of today, we're recording this on May 2nd, S&P's up about 219%. Berkshire's up about 215 So. You're going to get roughly the market's returns, probably better when times are a little more uncertain and volatile. And I think that's important because one of the things I talk about, Jeff, with when you own a stock, if you're, if you're not buying an index fund, if you're choosing a stock to buy, if you're picking an individual company to own, you need to have a reason to buy it because you think it's going to do something better than whatever the alternative investment would be. And in the case of Berkshire, I think it's that you know you're going to get Roughly the market, maybe a little bit better than the market, and almost certainly less volatile and probably better than the market when the market's not going gangbusters. Yeah. And another thing I, I think is really important with Berkshire Hathaway, if you own it, is more than maybe any other company, you need to know 
why you want to own it, like what role it's going to have in your portfolio. And I think it's fair to say it's not going to change. I read a great book back in early 2020 when I really started getting into investing that sort of summarized each of the annual meetings. It wasn't like every single letter and everybody was like notes from every meeting and just basically like, here was the gist of what they were talking about. And what struck me like the through line through the whole book was they really do want the shareholders that they deserve. You know, that, that expression, like you get the shareholders you deserve, like they want shareholders who own the company because they know what it is and they know why they own it. They don't want people jumping in and jumping out. I mean, you can't avoid that to some extent with the stock market and fractional trading and the B shares that are much more affordable than the A shares. But I think they view their job is to reward the person who's held Berkshire stock since 1971. Like, right. I feel like that's their, that's their worldview, right? Like these people have been with us for decades. They know yeah. why they bought it and we want to keep doing that, which is why even though well, there Buffett's, has been- Buffett's written as much, you know, in, yeah. in no uncertain terms. Buffett's written as much in multiple annual letters in, over, the, over the past 20 years. And even as they've evolved as a company, you know, like if you had went back in time and told someone that, Berkshire was going to own Apple, they probably would have been surprised. And then if you told them Berkshire was going to own Snowflake, which is like a high-flying tech, you know, run-up. We saw a crazy run-up with that company after its IPO. Now he got it at a much better price, but... And and this, I believe it's Todd Combs' investment. Yes, it wasn't his investment, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. But if you had just said like Berkshire Hathaway will own those two companies, if you had told someone that 20 years ago, they probably would have been shocked. So they've evolved, but not to the point where it changed why they, what they want the company to be and what they want it to be for its shareholders. And I think that's an interesting thing that's kind of unique to Berkshire. Yeah. Let's, let's move over, Jeff. I think instead of just, we've talked a lot about, about Berkshire itself as an investment and, and made the case there. What I would like to talk a little bit about is about Warren Buffett himself, the, the, the man, the, the CEO, the, the stock picker. And how do you, and I think about him and trying to find ways to use his example to, to sharpen our own tools and be better investors. Well, I said, what I just said was sort of a prelude to that in the sense that I, what impresses me the most is his consistency over decades of time whilst, while not being resistant to change. Yeah. I think that's a really difficult thing to be in life, right? Someone who's disciplined enough where you're not going to drastically change your sort of worldview or your investing view, but you're going to be open to learning new things. And that's sort of the point I was getting at with, again, maybe most likely it wasn't Warren Buffett that chose to buy Snowflake, but he, I'm sure he okayed it, or at least he gave the yeah. trust in the person who said it was okay to spend billions we'll, we'll of dollars look at on Apple, it. right? This is this Apple is the too. guy that did yeah. 23 years ago struggled to try to value tech stocks. And now- right. One of the largest technology companies in the in the world is its well the largest technology company in the world is its largest investment and biggest dollar winner, yeah. right? And that's what that's I mean. Like example. he's yeah. he's consistent in how he runs the company and how he makes investment decisions. But then even the investment in Activision Blizzard, which was essentially an arbitrage play, right? He basically bought the stock, assuming the deal would go through, and he said said as much at last year's annual meeting. So. That's something that everyone kind of scratched their head at, like that kind of unwarranted Buffett-like. I think it's great that the dude's like 90-something and yeah. is still willing to like learn new things, try new things. But again, it's all within the, the context of like not drastically changing his investing style. And I think that's yeah. what strikes me the most. I think, I think Buffett, his... So if we think about his evolution over the years, going back, this was you know somebody that... that, that cut his teeth as an investor at the, at the feet of Ben Graham, right? The, the creator of, of value investing, of literally valuing the parts of a business and buying it for below that liquidation price, right? Ben Graham created that and Buffett studied under him. He had a relationship with Phil Fisher, who had a different approach. And then, of course, Charlie Munger, as we know, who I think is probably the, the person that should get more credit. I don't want to say more credit than Buffett. But certainly should get the most credit for who Buffett has become as an investor, helping him move from that liquidation value, buying at a deep discount margin of safety price 
and wait for the market to correct and then make money when the market corrects to let, let the companies do all the hard work. And the hard work that we do is identifying the best businesses to buy that have great economics, durable moats, right? Those economic moats that like Coke's brand and, and Walmart's amazing distribution and logistics and, you know, all of those things that are durable that protect the profits and give them the ability to take more market share. Moody's, right? With their duopoly in, in ratings, like all of that stuff. Spend all your work finding those companies and then figuring out what is the fair price range. And then when they fall into that price range, you buy them. And then you just let the managers do all the hard work, right? That transition, that's Charlie Munger, right? And he doesn't get enough credit for that. So they have that framework. But, and this is, I'm just using my words to kind of repeat what you were just saying. To me, the thing that Warren Buffett has in spades that may, has made him the best investor of the past, however far back you can go where there's measurable data is mental flexibility. This is the same guy, and this is kind of a bad example because it didn't exactly work out when, when Buffett made the change, but this is the same guy that literally wrote, the investing world would have been better if somebody had have shot the Wright brothers, right? <laughs> and that the airline industry had never become a thing. He was being glib, of course, but it had been a terrible investment decision. But the information changed, right? And we look at the teens, the 20 teens, there'd been a ton of consolidation. There was great tailwinds to continue to grow the airline industry, and the industry had become a profitable entity. Of course, the pandemic blew that up. Buffett exited that trade and, and moved on. But this is somebody that's always willing to look at the facts on the ground and when the facts change, change the way they view and the decisions that they make while still being disciplined in the thing that matters. And that's what am I willing to pay for it? Right. Yeah. And I think hearing you say that one of the other things that jumped into my mind was there's a for someone who's had the success he has had and has the track record he has it's remarkable how much humility he continues to show they they pro i've never heard him once brag about a trade it, in in fact i've probably heard him talk more about the mistakes they've made versus there's a little bit of humble brags in some of his letters. He, this investment turned out to this this way for us, but he talks a lot about, yep, I was wrong on that. I made a mistake on that. So that's one thing that I think is also worth adding on to what you just said. And then the other thing, when you say about flexible thinking, there's also like one constant through line that I think he's referenced in, if not every annual meeting and every annual letter, probably most of them that I've seen, he's he's completely convinced that there's no better thing than capitalism in America. He talks about betting on America all the time. And if you think about the most macro big picture way you could think about the, the US stock market and the fact that it averages 10% a year and two out of every three years it goes up and it's just a basic constant march from the bottom left to the top right of the chart over hundreds of years. Yeah, and it's, that's a it's, bet it's on American capitalism. Economic value, right? At its right. core, it's the creation of economic value. And and it's just, I love the fact that, like, if you were, I, in my opinion, if you distill his investment philosophy down to one thing, it's basically like buy great companies because America's awesome and it will continue to grow and you'll become rich. Like, it's so, it's basically that. It's like yeah. bet on America. He says it just like that all the time bet on America, bet on America. And I just think that's an interesting. It's so easy to get lost in the minutia of the weeds and, you know, cash flows and 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 net income and and earnings, and but at the at the highest level, it's basically like buy great American businesses and watch them grow. So why is he why is he betting on Japan, Jeff? Seems like he's just betting on Japan lately. It's a good point. I take back everything I just said. Okay, that's all I was going for. No, I I, I love that. Let's let's one more thing I want to do here before we move into our. Our, our, our B segment is I thought this would be a fun game to play. Buffett's Berkshire's gotten so gigantic. It, it just, it can't buy everything that we think that Buffett would want to buy. He's actually said in the past that if he was managing a million dollars, he'd be able to crush the market, right? Because his, the, the abilities that he has and so had would have so much more optionality of what he could buy. So let's come up with a couple of stocks that make no sense for Berkshire to buy, but do you think that are very, very, Berkshire Buffett businesses. So the first one that jumped to mind when when we were planning this was Old Dominion Freight Lines, and it for a couple reasons, right? It it's 
it's one of those like staples of the American economy, right? We need to move things around the country. Trucks are the way we do it, along with trains and planes and ships and things like that. And he's invested in other transportation like things before the airlines. He owns yeah, railroads. Yeah, Northern Santa Fe, right? Owns right. one of the largest class one railways in the U.S. Yeah. So from that standpoint, I, it's a people are always going to move things on trucks in our country, or at least for the foreseeable future. And the other p the reason I think it's a good Berkshire Berkshire like company is he, they like to buy a company or buy a big stake in a company and then let the company run itself. Excuse me. They're not interested in buying a company and then putting, you know, Warren Buffett as the CEO of the company. They want to buy it, take the management team with them and let them run it. And Old Dominion has a great track record with their management team. One of the things you hear often about them is they're so good to their employees that they don't even ever want to like try to join a union or anything like that. So it just seems like from the type of business it is, it's importance to the economy and the fact that you could just buy it and let management keep doing what they're doing. To me, it jumps out first thing. That's definitely a, a Buffett business. Now you're right. They could buy the whole thing and it probably wouldn't move the needle for their company, yeah. but it seems to fit their framework, at least from my external view. I've, I've got one. Live Oak Bank. So first of all, we know Buffett loves banks. Mm -hmm. And like I want to provide some context for why Buffett has been a big appreciator of banks. It, because it ties to the same reason he loves insurance. Because there are really good ways that if, if you have really good conservative, responsible management, it's, it's a way to get a huge leverage return on capital. Because with insurance companies, you have that float, right? Which Berkshire has, I don't know, $100 billion or more afloat, which is basically perpetual free capital at zero interest that it can reinvest. It's other people's money that it can invest interest-free. And if you do it conservatively, it, it's free return, right? Whatever return you get on it is, is, is essentially free, and it's wonderful. So with banks, you know, with a smart bank, you... you you know, 10% of the capital comes from the shareholders of the bank. The other 90% of capital comes from depositors, right? So those are round figures. So again, you have to pay some yield to those depositors. But if you run conservatively, banks can be incredibly, incredibly profitable. So again, that's why Buffett loves banks. And it's always been kind of a big, you know, a corner, one of the corner pillars of, of, of Berkshire's portfolio over the years. And why I think Live Oak would be really compelling is because it's it's a bank that's carved out a really good niche in an area where the tailwinds are good and they're conservative about the way they grow, right? They focus on small businesses, building, lending to different industries where the economic tailwinds are good and the economics of those industries are good, like they have good profitability. You know, they're not going to lend to industries that are cash burn and not profitable, right? They focus where there's profits, right? And where there's growth. And they build the lines. And then the way that they've built their deposit base is detached from it. So you don't have Silicon Valley Bank where your depositors are your, you know, these cash burn businesses that you count on for every other aspect of your business line as well. And you end up with this implosion that they, that they ended up having. There's a detachment from its, its depositors, which are mar mostly just like retail savers, right? People with CDs and, and high yield savings. They're trying to increase their deposits with small businesses, but right. So they're building a more diversified book. So, but I think those competitive advantages of, of the way they built the business, the yields, the returns that they get, like you would look at their return on, 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 on capital and the return on equity. They're very, very good. And it's very, very well run. I think you've still got at least one, one founder that's still involved. Again, the, the importance of management, I would say Live Oak Bank, but again, it's tiny, right? It's, 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 yeah. it's, you know, it's, you could, you could buy it with, I don't know what you could buy it with. Not, not very much above its money, though, that's for sure. Well, the last thing you said there about management is the piece that makes it jump out to me. You know, we learned when we spoke with John Maxfield a couple episodes ago, and if anyone hasn't heard that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because it was pretty, pretty interesting to hear him talk before the, the mini banking crisis we had back in March. Sort of, not that he predicted it, but basically pointed out that all of the incentive structures in the banking industry are to do bad things, you could take on too much risk. And so in that vein, one of the things I think I like about Live Oak Bank 
but also I think makes it appealing to someone like Warren Buffett, who cares a lot about managers and managers that do the right ethical thing. They talk very openly on their conference calls and in their press releases about, you know, basically like con conservative cash flows first, growth second, right? Or growth third, you know? So, right. you know, now you have to walk the walk and talk the talk, but based on management comments, it seems like they understand that the incentive structure is to take on more risk. And they're, they, they're very upfront about like, we're not going to do that. We're going to manage this business conservatively. So I think that's just one more reason. I think it, that makes a lot of sense. Do you have another one? So there's, I, I want to know your thoughts on this, either or both Home Depot or Lowe's. I was just trying to think like big, steady, important businesses in the American economy. And, and those two jump out at me as fitting the, the profile. Again, management team can run it. It's durable, pays a decent dividend. I just, it, it, those, those big home improvement companies seem to jump out at me. I don't know one versus the other, but those were the only one, the only other ones that sort of leapt out to me as like possibilities. I don't know. I don't yeah, feel as strongly and, about that as I do Old Dominion Freight Lines, but I don't know what your thoughts were. Well, I, w I will say that they're actually, I think they're both big enough at this point that Berkshire could take a stake in them. And it is a little surprising to me that it never has. And the reason why it's surprising to me is if you look at the Berkshire subsidiary portfolio, like the wholly owned subsidiaries, they've got exposure to home building, right? And to construction with some of, some of their subsidiaries, right? They make they have a, a, a manufactured homes company, right? That's one of the biggest manufactured homes makers in the U.S. And they make have a couple companies that manufacture products that are used by the construction industry. And there's Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate, right? They have the brokerage business. So it is a little bit surprising because, again, the tailwinds are really good here because we know the, the existing stock of housing in the U.S. is getting old, Right. And so there's a lot of DIY and contractor money that's going to flow through these retailers, right? As people have to spend money on the home that they have to improve it, remodel it, expand it, right? Interest rates haven't gone up. People are going to spend money on their house because they can't afford to buy that move up house, right? So, so all of those things. And then the reality is that there's just not enough housing inventory out there, right? So it is a little surprising to me and that, that he's never considered either one because they've both also been like their economic economics, the returns are wonderful. Like the, the cash returns, the businesses generate, right. have been wonderful and they've just been market crushing investments. So it's a little bit of a surprise. They pay dividends, they grow the dividend, they buy back share. So like they check off every box of, of something you think that Buffett would like to have big brand power. Um, they're a duopoly, right? So there's so many things to like, and it is a little bit surprising. All right, so I'm going to throw you a curveball. We didn't discuss this ahead of time. So You're going to throw me an Uncle Charlie? I'm going to throw you an Uncle Charlie. Okay. So he's we old. Know Don't that, throw him very hard. Yeah, I know. I know. We know that the Snowflake purchase from a year or two ago was made by one of his lieutenants. Like, I think he's even said that openly. Yeah. So here's a question for you. Yeah, it was either Todd Combs or Ted Wessler. I think it was Combs. Yeah, I don't remember which one either. So what's the... What is the SaaS tech stock or, you know, true tech stock that a la Snowflake that would surprise you the least if you found out at the next 13F that Berkshire Hathaway took a stake in? Amazon. Okay. I wasn't thinking that kind of tech stock, but that's a good, that is a good, yeah, that makes a lot of sense too. It, it, it does. It does. And my guess is the, is the reason why not is because there's still so much it's still in that phase where they're having to pile money into growing the the distribution network, right? Needs more warehouses, needs more last mile. You, we talked about it. We did a little video over on our YouTube channel if folks want to check it out. Like one of the three things that kind of stood out was this is the first time in like a couple of years that the North American e-commerce division was actually generated an operating profit, right? Yeah, it had gone back to, I think it was Q3 of 21 was the last time that it it was had an operating positive operating profit for that segment. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say that either that or maybe even maybe Microsoft, right? It, it already owns Amazon. So, or excuse me, not Amazon owns Apple. So why not add a collection of the largest, most profitable companies in the U S so my thinking along the lines of like, what would be an, a new tech stock that Berkshire might, you know, if they were going to go down the road of something like snowflake again, and, th and this is interesting to think about, I think, because 
we know at some point, you know, Buffett and Munger aren't going to be making the decisions and they've already named Greg Abel as the next CEO. Like they've made that succession plan known. But what about one of the cybersecurity companies in terms of if you're just thinking the pure tech space, it's hard to find another part of that industry, a part of that sector that has more tailwinds behind it than something like cybersecurity. And that may be sort of out of the circle of competence of Warren and Charlie. But I, I do wonder if, whether it's CrowdStrike or Zscaler or Fortinet or, or one of those big cybersecurity names, I wonder if one of those could be on their radar, especially if down the road they're able to the ones that are still burning cash and not profitable are able to kind of work that piece out. I do wonder if that's a tech part of the tech space that they could have interest in maybe down the road. And, and that's one of the reasons I think Microsoft might be one of those companies because, you know, they, they have a... Because it's already there. It's, it's there, right? Yeah. And it's, 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 this is, you know, it's, this is as much as IBM was a mistake, the, the mistake to warm up that Buffett made buying it seven or eight years ago, right? IB, IBM or Microsoft checks off all the boxes about relevancy that IBM did not have. So I have, I'm going to go back to this is the last one. And then we'll, we'll take a little break here, Jeff, but I'm going to go back to that, that construction housing business. And I think a very Buffett business to me that is just way too small for Berkshire to buy any of his Meritage homes. It's a home builder. So again, we've, we've talked about it owns a large manufactured housing business. It owns those companies that make construction products and Meritage Homes made the smart move. I think it's 2016, 2017. They really first started talking about it. Steve Hilton, the founder who was the CEO at the time, he's since retired. I think he's still the executive chairman or maybe chairman emeritus. They made a pivot to focus like 80 or 90% of their business on building entry-level housing because they saw coming out of the financial crisis when builders basically stopped making starter homes, this six or seven year period where we weren't building that. And guess what? Millennials is the, the largest population in the country. It's the oldest, it's the largest cohort, partly because boomers are declining, right? So they kind of, they kind of walk backwards into second place. But again, it's, and they're doing all of the stuff that every generation before it did. They're just doing it at a little bit older age in terms of like buying homes and that kind of stuff. Meritage made that smart pivot, has still has a big founder influence on the business. Very, very good management. The CEO was the CFO under Steve Hilton for years. So there's that continuity there. Really good economic model. Like the returns that they generate are very, very good. And as long as you understand the cycles and you're thoughtful about when you put money to work in buying these businesses and, and being willing to hold through the cycles, they check off all the buckets that of, 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 of what I think Berkshire would look for. So this is the part where I take us to break. We'll be right back, everybody. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're going to do a couple things here in the second part of the show. The first thing we're going to do, Jeff, is we have ended a month. We have gone through April. So we're a quarter plus a month in, and we owe our listeners an update on the Smattering 2023 Portfolio Contest. So we're not going to do any deep discussion here. We're going to keep those to the quarterly reviews. We spent a little too much time in January and February talking about this, so we'll just do a really quick summary. So... The, the year to date winner, winning portfolio through April 30th is still the, the unportfolio, the stocks that neither Jason or I would buy, thanks to just ridiculous year to date returns by meta platforms and very respectable returns by Tesla. And basically, AMC and Blink cancel each other out. One's yeah. up 35, one's down 35%. So if I, what Jeff's saying is that if I had have just been the one to pick the unportfolio, yeah, yeah. we've been through it would this. Be the worst performing portfolio, not the best. Yes, performing. I I take full credit slash blame for the success of the unportfolio. You're um, an amazing stock unpicker, Jeff. I just want to say, you know, well, before you say that, I would like to uh, highlight something else about the end of April result, which is that 
the team audience is now in second place with uh, a 26% return through April 30th. But the next place team actually is me mm-hmm. up 13%. And after that is yours, which is only up 7%. So yeah. after trailing you for the first three quarters, I have finally snuck into first place, at least at the end of April. And then the the worst portfolio out of the group is the one that you and I chose together, which is now down 12%. So that's where we stand. I just want to also point out one more time that I am I was beating Jason at the end of April. I might bring that up one or two more times throughout this podcast. So that's where we stand, Jason. As you should, damn you, Lemonade. By the time that you folks listen to this, Lemonade will have reported earning and will have roared, roared back. It reports tomorrow, Jeff. So, Moving on. So, Jason, during the banking crisis, mini crisis, non-crisis, depending on you said No, it's a crisis. You said it was a crisis. It's a crisis. You're right, Jeff. This is our ongoing joke. You decided that you were going to take a admittedly trading position in First Republic Bank, which as of Monday morning of this week has been taken over by the government and sold to J.B. Morgan for pennies on the dollar. So so the bank has been sold. The holding company, of which I was a shareholder, is dying on the vine. Yeah, it's a zero. So as much as I like to revel in your losses and mistakes, we we both think there are some important there is some important context around your decision. Yep. Even though it was, you know, a trade that did not work out, we wanted to talk through it. Oh no, the we trade don't... worked out great, but that was one of the mistakes. We'll talk about that. <laughs> that that's true. That's a very good point. So, having said all that, Jason, I will turn it over to you to talk through what you did, how it worked out, and what you learned from the process. So let's go back to our our running towards fire episode that we did, right? And we could really go back to the, we'll start there, right? Because the whole idea of that show was the, the banking mini crisis had begun. This was, you know, in early March, Silicon Valley Bank and, and Signature Bank were taken over by the FDIC. And we talked about how many other banks, bank stocks had fallen 20% or more when these two banks were taken over as investors were just fleeing any potential chance that this was going to turn into like another bank, like broad banking crisis. And that hasn't happened so far, right? We've seen three banks that have been taken over by the FDIC and we saw a crypto bank. So I can't remember the name of it right now, but Silvergate Capital, right? They, they, they chose to wind down their own operations. They were never seized by the FDIC. They made the decision to wind down operations, right? So we've seen basically four banks that have folded and at least two of the four with Signature and Silvergate were very much tied to crypto. So anyway, the point is we saw all of this happening. A lot of bank stocks were falling. And First Republic kind of got looped in with Silicon Valley Bank as being highly likely to be in trouble. And for two reasons. Number one, like Silicon Valley Bank, the vast majority of its deposits were above that $250,000 FDIC insured limit. Now, the difference is that its depositors were not startups burning through cash. First Republic's model was a very high-touch wealth management catering to wealthy clients, right? That's what they were doing. So successful business owners, like I think 2% of their clients were tech, tech companies or, you know, entrepreneurs that were part of technology. It was a very smart, small part of the mix, right? So they had built this really great franchise, right? That was really high touch and that was really appealing to high net wealth clients. So anyway, the, the point is that you still had this more than two thirds of its deposits that were uninsured. And it had made the same mistake that Silicon Valley Bank did in acquiring a ton of really low yielding uh, mortgage backed securities in 2020 and 2021 that were yielding less than you could get in a 30-day treasury, right? So it had high-risk, long-dated assets and its short-dated liabilities were going to be a problem if there was a loss of confidence in this bank. So I saw the stock absolutely crater, did a little bit of research, and at the same time, I was adding to my long-term positions in Live Oak Bank, we talked about, 
Central Pacific Financial, a few others that I bought more of that fell that you look at their balance sheets, you look at their liabilities and their deposit base, and you didn't, there was, it's not even close to the same kind of risk that you saw with Silicon Valley Bank. I was adding to those. I looked at First Republic, thought about the value of its business and its franchise and everything that they built. And I said, this one may or not survive, may or may not survive, but I think the market is way overreacted based on the information that it has right now. I'm going to buy some shares and this is a good trade. It may be a week. It may be a few days, but I'm going to buy this on a trade and I'm going to make money. And you said publicly at the time, I forget if it was on the podcast or a video you made or both, you are viewing it as a trade, which yep. is not your normal investing process, but you, mm -hmm. for all the reasons you just gave, viewed this as it's a set amount of money that I'm willing to lose if it doesn't work out, but I view this as a trade. And as a trade, like you said, it actually at one point worked out really well. So continue. Within three, within three days, it was up 80%. So the trade worked out really well. But, but I didn't sell. Jeff, you should ask me why I didn't sell. Jason, why didn't you sell after it was up 80% in three days? One of the things that I talk about a lot, and we talk about the toolbox that I think is so important for investors, and usually this is the thing we struggle with the most, Jeff, is managing ourselves and understanding ourselves and then building our portfolio around that, knowing our tendencies and our weaknesses and our strengths. And I'm a really optimistic person by nature. And I think in life, like being trusting and optimistic serves me very, very well. I, I just couldn't imagine going through life being so cynic, cyn cynical and expecting that everybody's a crook and you can't trust anybody. It just seems like a really miserable way to live, right? And it's that fine. Carries... It's fine. It's, it's yeah, a fine yes. way to live. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So now you, now you see why Jeff and I are, are good investing partners because we're very different. So the problem is that I let that mission creep of my life and most of my long portfolio affect the way I was viewing this trade. And I made the decision that, you know what? I think this stock is worth 20 bucks. Like it's worth 20 bucks. I'm this company's going to be fine. I'm going to I'm going to hold this and I think they're going to get through this and they're going to be fine. And 20 bucks like to me it's worth that. So I'm going to make money. I did make money. Narrator, it was not worth 20 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> right? So and and here's the thing like I let confirmation bias convince me in, instead of thinking about this as being, and it's funny, right? The irony here is that I'm the one that's been telling you that this was a crisis and you're the one saying, no, it's not a crisis. It's just a little thing. And completely ignoring the fact that within the walls of First Republic, clearly this was a crisis, right? So I looked at things like we saw the big, all the big banks got together and pooled $30 billion and deposited in First Republic. And like I telegraphed that, I read that as like a telegraph from the big banks. It's like, you know what? Because our that money's not insured by the FDIC, we're gonna, you know, one of us is gonna come in with as a white knight. And we're gonna we're gonna buy it, and it's gonna be fine. And I, I just I kind of let it ride, and I, and I frankly I wasn't paying a lot of attention to it over the past month or so. I knew earnings was coming up, and I'm like, you know what? Well, hopefully, we'll find out things have kind of stabilized. And then Jeff, they reported that their deposits fell a hundred billion. Dollars and that fell after the thirty billion that they got. If I if I'm correct, yeah, no, that's a hundred billion. Yeah, exactly. That's that's yeah. that's the hundred billion, right? So here's the thing: at the end of the day, what what J.P. Morgan ended up acquiring was a bank with sixty two billion dollars of deposits. It had almost a couple hundred billion dollars of deposits, you know, at the beginning of the year, right? So a lot of those customers left. So that sticky bet relationship and banking, it doesn't matter if people are afraid their money's going to evaporate. And even everything that the FDI said to FDIC did to backstop Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank's deposits above that those insured limits, even the $30 billion that the biggest banks deposited and said, we're going to put it at risk right alongside every other depositor, that wasn't enough to instill confidence. I ignored all of that stuff, Jeff. 
and I, I, I let a perfectly good trade turn into a loss. So I applaud you for publicly talking through that. And it's one of the things that I think you and I agree that we want to see more of out in the financial world is people talking about their mistakes. We even alluded to the fact that one of the things we admire about Warren Buffett, we yeah. talked about earlier, is the fact that he's he is very open about you know bad trades they've made. But I guess my question for you is, so this now, this one's done, right? It's gone. It's a zero. Yeah. You lost that money. But did it, other than don't let trades turn into long positions, did it teach you anything else about if you ever try something like something like this again or any other trades you or purchases or sales you made in your portfolio tied to this whole banking situation? Did it teach any other lessons for you? Yeah, a couple. So I want to highlight that that one main thing again is that if if I have had any sense and just had to been disciplined just to let it be a trade, even even if my thought process about the about the potential long-term investability was changing, I should have exited the trade, made money, and then continued to learn and watch instead of making the mistake that I did of in in the in midstream turning it into something else. And that was that was certainly a mistake. But some things that it's emphasized for me that I think are really important, you know, we just did the episode running away from fire, where we talk we talked about last week we talked about people running into these blue chips and now overpaying and right, it's probably gonna hurt people's performance because they're paying way too much for perfectly good companies. And that's gonna hurt returns, right? Just as much as losing money can hurt too. And but what it reminded me is not letting specific outcomes blow up a, a good process because I know that Central Pacific Financial, NC Butterfield and Son, uh, Live Oak Bank, others that I bought, I bought four or five other banks or four or five banks total. Those investments are going to yield multiples over what I lost, right? So the process is still sound as long as you don't screw it up. And, and that's the thing is I'm not going to overcompensate for that. And I'm going to learn the valid lessons and apply them in the best way. And the last thing, the lesson that it emphasized for me is sometimes I think we make these mistakes of looking at these little bets we make. And again, this was for me, based on my portfolio, it was a little bit, maybe it's, and you have to find that number for you, whether it's a hundred, a thousand, 10,000, 10, whatever the dollar number is that you can be like, you know what? I'm going to play a little bit of risk here. I'm going to make more of a bet. I'm going to speculate. And if I lose that number, it won't affect my life in any way. Sometimes we it's okay if you do a few of those, but if you do 50 of those or five or whatever the number is, all of a sudden the number becomes meaningful and it can, it can lead to massive underperformance of your entire wealth building strategy over time. So one of the little tricks that I've kind of developed about thinking about it is not thinking about that $1,000 or whatever number, that $1,000 that I'm going to invest today that's in my 401k that I'm going to play a little bit of risk with. But what, what should that $1,000 be worth when I'm 70, when I'm going to be relying on it? And it's like, oh, okay, well, that's a month of income when I'm retired <laughs> that I'm pissing away. Do I really want to take that gamble with that money? Is this grocery money or is it actually money I can play with? Being thoughtful about extrapolating that today number into what is it actually? Because as soon as you invest it, it's no longer money and it becomes ownership of something. What what could it be worth when it when you need to make it money again? Right. It's actually a good. I'm glad you said that out loud because I've on this podcast before said like it's okay if you want to put a couple hundred bucks towards this thing and try that out and. And I agree with you, like you do that once or twice, fine, but you do have to start to think about the alternative, right? I think so the thing, the framework I came up with after you said it, that sort of helps me is like, before doing this thing, what's the, what would happen if I took that dollar amount and just bought an S&P 500 index fund and left it for the next, however long I'm alive or till I retire, whatever the time frame is. And then it, like you said, it becomes, no, it's not just the X amount of dollars today. It's the X plus growth that you could have down the road. Jeff, Jeff, we made it. Made it to the we end. made it. We made it to the end and we are excited to be heading to Omaha in a couple of days. 
We're going to try to record some content. So if we're able to get anything together that's worth sending out, you can look for possibly a bonus episode early next week. No promises, but we're going to see what we can do. And if not, you can catch us back here next Saturday on our normal normal schedule. I want to encourage people to check out our YouTube channel. A lot of folks, you might not be looking for a lot of our normal content where we're talking about individual stocks and companies. But Tyler Crow and I, we've recorded some videos and Jeff and I are going to record some videos too, where we're talking about Berkshire and Buffett related things that I think might be pretty interesting and more similar to some of the stuff we do on the podcast. So check that out. I think you'll like it. We're going to drop a lot of that on the Sunday and Monday after this episode's come out. So be sure to check that out too. All right, everybody. As always, Jeff and I love to share our answers to these hard questions about investing, but it is up to you, just like it's up to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, to answer those questions for yourself. You can do it. I believe in you. All right, Jeff, we'll see you next time, buddy. See you next time.